What's up, my dudes? I'm back here with the final episode of the Mushrooms and Jesus podcast, and this took longer than I expected. The editorial process on these last few chapters was really, really long, because I I read all the, the shit, and the problem was this book was really repetitive towards the end. And as much as he, you know, tried to break it up with other, you know, other stuff, I just, I didn't find a lot of that information, like, it didn't separate itself well enough from his translations of, you know, ancient Hebrew. And I I cut a lot of stuff out. Because there was, like, the last chapter, and this was the the Bible is a book of morals. Like, okay, that's, I'm not even going to cover that because no one needs to, compared to the other stuff we've been talking about, like, no one, no one cares. But um, I'm, I really focused on two, two concepts here. There was the idea of the virgin birth mythology and women in the creative process, not like the artistic process, but, you know, procreation type stuff. And it was interesting to me because he made the point that ancient peoples would have potentially venerated the mushroom because it didn't have a traditional seed like other plants. And, you know... People didn't understand that. They're like, yeah, what the? What is this thing? This fucking weird ass plant that <laughs> that's just out here showing up. And uh, I forget the guy's name, but I, I listed it down here on page fifty-five. I believe it was no, it was Pliny. Pliny the Elder. He uh, wrote in one of his texts that. There is sort of intermediate existence between plants and inanimate nature. And I, I kind of get what he's going at there. But like, what exactly is inanimate nature? You know? Is it, is it a rock? Does this guy argue that plants were somewhat conscious? I mean, who knows? But this was kind of the interesting thing for me. Uh, it was theorized for a long time that the mushroom was seeded by thunderstorms. And in Greek, it picked up the name uh, Serayunian, which means thunderbolt or lightning bolt. In Sumerian, it used the name Udnun, which was storm seeded. And that's kind of... I didn't really... I don't know much about mycology, but I didn't know that mushrooms were more frequently, you know, spotted after thunder and lightning. Now, this might just be the fact that there was rain there and the fungus grew because of the rain, but uh, who, who really knows on that one? I mean, I might have to find a mycology expert. So... There was a section on page 55 that really covered Father God concepts, which I'm going to bust that page out right now so we know. But it was talking about like Zeus and, um, and Jesus and, and the Christian God, 56, 55. There we go. So 
I'm just going to read the, the section here. The phallic form of the mushroom matched precisely to that of precisely that of his father, whom the Sumerians called Isker, which whoever's fucking naming these gods needs to stop. Isker translated to mighty penis. And I'm I'm at the end of my rope with these fucking Sumerians. The Semites had Adad or Hadad, big father. The Greeks, Pater Zeus, and the Romans, Jupiter father god to see the mushroom was to see the father as in jesus the uncomprehending philip was urged to look for god he who has seen me has seen the father do you not believe that i am the father and the father in me even the demons recognized him as the holy one of god and it was as the holy plant that the sacred fungus came to be known throughout the world that little excerpt was pretty interesting to me because i didn't know that there were that many um like paternal god concepts in the idea of Zeus and Isker and Hadad, that um, is generally, like, I think I mentioned it before, but I feel like what we're seeing is really just a bunch of different cultures' perspectives on a really similar thing, if not the same thing. But, you know, to continue on the main points here, the Magi who were related to the Essenes but seemed to be their successor, believed that mushrooms were the concentration of God's spittle, and that if one were anointed with the juice of it, they would be granted incredible powers, including self-omniscience. That's kind of interesting when you think about it this way. One, I don't know who the fuck is getting juice out of mushrooms, but it seems like the the magi were using um, psychedelic plants and the thing that I kind of you'll see what I mean when I'm talking about stuff later on in these notes but I, I really wonder what those incredible powers were because I didn't um, it didn't mention anything else and I'm kind of disappointed at that because it wasn't like, yo, these guys claim they had telepathy and they were fucking all super, like, super ascetic monk people that had magical powers. Like, that's what I wonder. Now, the question, self-omniscience, because omniscience means to know everything, but is self-omniscience just total knowing of the self? Hang on. There we go. Let's look at that. Let's look at that definition. Um, okay. Omniscience, according to monotheistics and Sikhism, the perfect manifestation of the innate nature of the self arising on complete annihilation of the obstructive veils. Oh, that's a that's a heavy that's a heavy sentence. That's a lot to unpack. So here's what I propose. It's been known for a long time, mostly anecdotally, that psychedelic tri trips can induce a thing called ego death, and this process of ego death is 
well, being hard to describe, in short, it's this cessation of the existence of your ego. And it strips you down to the fundamentals of what you really are. Now that, that's some shit in itself. But if, if self-omniscience is what I'm led to believe it is, then that, that gives me more validity for the idea that these guys were taking Amanita muscari or whatever the mushroom was there. Now, this is kind of an aside, but there was this secret incense formula that had 11 specific ingredients described in the Talmud and 13 as described by the Bible. Now, the Talmud actually lists 11 of those ingredients. The 13 are just mentioned in the Bible as far as he says, but it supposedly had a secret herb that was good at creating smoke. Now, there's probably a lot of things you can burn that create smoke, but if I'm going to be a fucking crackpot, I'm going to say these people might have been smoking weed, too. They might have been smoking a lot of weed. I need to... The way I set this this mic up, I have to, like, leave my computer, like, almost a full, like, half an arm's length away. And weed in the uh, Roman Empire. And I don't... Huh, this is interesting. I need, I just need to get a keyboard or something. Hmm. Oh, that's kind of interesting. So, there was there was weed in the Roman Empire. Rescue excavations carried out by the Israel Antiquities Authority in 1989 near the ancient city of Beit Shemesh uncovered a Roman burial tomb dated back to the late fourth century, in which were found the remains of a young girl of 14 years who died in childbirth. Oh, that's some shit. Along with the body of the mother, an unborn child were seven grams of organic material, which is originally believed to be incense. Subsequent microscopic analysis of the material by the forensic laboratories of the Israel Policing and a Gas Chromatic Gas Analysis performed by chemists at Hadassah Medical School showed the unmistakable presence of tetralhydrocannabinol, a component component to cannabis, which indicated the presence of cannabis sativa in the sample. Hmm. Sources provide the first written evidence in 1600 BC that this plant was used in association with mothers and children... McCollum assumes was probably used in the prevention of hemorrhage in childbirth. Extensive research on the medicinal history of the plant and others has shown that the use of the plant for a variety of purposes was widespread in the old world for 12 millennia. Studies done by British medical researchers on the medical effect 
efficacy of cannabis sativa in the mid-1800s showed that the plant was medically effective for women in the final stages of pregnancy in increasing the force of uterine contractions along with a significant reduction of labor pain, thus explaining its extensive use in the fields of health, healing, and childbirth. That was a mouthful, but that was really intriguing. And there goes... Oh, shit. Oh, what the what the fuck is up with my computer lately? It just hops between tabs and my mouse will disappear. Like, come on, guys. That, um, that might be, that might be it. So they talked about embalming for a little bit. And I just sectioned it out here because it was pretty cool why they started embalming. It didn't have to do with preservation. The place we seem to get embalming as a method of preservation from was the Egyptians because they were the only people who were actively mummifying in the Middle East that we know of, that I know of. And it seemed to be a final religious right to grant people the gifts like self-omniscience and, you know, all these crazy whatever. And a little fun fact here. To embalm means to mature or to make spicy. Those mummies are spicy as fuck. Like, ungot... Ghost peppers ain't got shit on mummies. If you want to really lose your mind, go eat a mummy. (laughs) Um, This... This next section was a bit weird. So aspiring priests, and the wording is really unclear here, couldn't masturbate. Or they would have to travel through a secret tunnel out of the temple and into the profane area of the city they trained in. And the wording here specifically says something on the lines of mixing their semen with the semen of a god and it was it was kind of like unnecessarily vague I just don't a big problem with this book to me and this guy wrote later books in his career but I just I don't know you know where or why some of these book parts of this book have to be so vague. I mean, I get it's ancient history and we can't know exactly what went on, but you know, if you're going to do all this research and make all these translations, I think you would have a pretty good idea of what's going on. Now, you know, many people know who, who Jesus is, but many people don't know where the term Christ comes from. And it was a Sumerian term for resinous sap like pine tree sap or semen. And the Sumerian word for this was shem and mosh, and those are respective. A moshman was an exorcist who dealt with demonic matters. Because of the way they described demons earlier, I think a moshman was a doctor. Whereas a shemman was a compounder of perfumes. This one stuck out to me because Shemman sounds a lot like shaman. 
guess what shamanic cultures are known for? It's fucking psychedelics and meditation. So I have a feeling that shaman might have its root in Sumerian. I mean, it's not, you know, dead on, but it's pretty similar. So there was this group called the Therapeutes, which was a celibate order of mixed gender who shunned property. And a big note here, the Therapeutiae were so similar to a Christian historian of that era that he couldn't tell if they weren't Christian. So this order, a celibate order that was effectively a fringe religion, was so similar to Christian practices that he didn't know if they weren't Christian. Now, I'm going to give you guys a little bit of a uh, context here. The Therapeutiae were Greek. So there's a bit of removal here from, you know, the Middle East. Now, there were other cults like the Samseans who were Christian sun worshipers. That's pretty much all the detail he gave about them. But that was like... He just drops it on you and you're like, oh, you fucking what, mate? And then he just goes off and it's like, I want to learn more about Christian sun worshipers. So the next part... And this part is the one that gets real fucking weird is women in the creative process. And specifically, that's women's purpose in Middle Eastern society and according to religion. I mean, there was something I cut out that it was the idea that in these early cults, there were prostitutes that served the cult specifically. And the thing is, it was interesting, but it didn't really serve much purpose about, you know, the foundation of these cults. It was really just more this kind of thing that he put in there that while it was intriguing, especially considering religious stances on you know, wedlock and um, if we even go back earlier in this book, the idea of wasting semen being a, a major sin, a major sin. It seems like a prostitute who serves specifically for the cult is a contradiction. And I don't as much as I want to share all the information in here, I, I realize that I have to I have to cut certain parts because they're just not that useful to the overall narrative here. Now, according to Leviticus 15, 19 through 25, a woman on her period is unclean and must be isolated as her coming into contact with them will also make them unclean. If any okay, so if anyone comes into to contact with a woman on her period, they are unclean, according to Leviticus. This is only matched by a person touching a lizard or masturbating. So, um, I don't know what lizards did to, to get this level of, uh, 
this level of hate, but they don't deserve it. Now, here's the wacky shit I was telling you about. Menstrual blood was apparently known for its incredible healing powers. And the first occurrence of menstrual blood from a woman was apparently strong enough to cause a mare to miscarry on sight over long distances. Okay, can we just slow that down, run it back here? Who the fuck tested that? And to go a little bit further, like, who came down one day and was like, yo, I'm a doctor, a physician. I know that the body has four humors, and they must be balanced at all times. Otherwise... Bad things happen. I'm going to check out the effect of menstrual blood on mares. That's what I'm going to spend my time today and potentially the foreseeable future doing. I'm going to go and I'm going to find a woman who's never had a period before. And I'm just going to I'm just going to buy the blood off of her for for whatever fucking reason. And I'm just going to take that shit to a a paddock with a bunch of horses. I'm just pour it on the ground and I'm going to watch to see what happens because I am a doctor and this is science. That's, that's just what happened in my head. I, I can't, I can't get away from it. So, for all you fantasy fans out there, there's a linguistic connection between the basilisk, which is a type of dragon, and menstruation, because their blood was apparently magical. And, you know, page 65 has an excerpt for this, so I'm just going to hop right on over there, and we're going to read some more. Page 65. All right. The name basilisk actually means womb blood. That is, menses. No shit. Come on, dude. Pliny adds that some people call it Saturn's blood, which looks like a reminiscence of the same Virgil verbal origin. Um, oh, God. Since the name Saturn is partly composed of a Sumerian word, shatur, womb. One important characteristic of Saturn's blood was that if it was the color and consistency of pitch, pine tar, the ancients saw a close relationship between this substance and menstrual blood, apparently believing that it was the Earth's equivalent of human menses. I'm... You ever just read something and you have to stop and wonder like what people were thinking at the time? Like, hey, yo, we're, we're medical, we're, we're mash men, right? We're really good at pitch and, uh, and blood. We're excellent in matters of demon issues. And we, we really think that these trees, Earth's blood, it's, all, it's where it's coming from. That's Earth's blood. Not like, you know, water or anything that could probably be more equivalent to blood than anything, literally anything else. But, you know, let's just, okay. All right. 
they particularly noted that there were lumps of bitumen, which is, uh, I, f- I forgot. I looked it up too. I, I'm disappointed in myself that I forgot what this obscure word is. A black viscous mixture of hydrocarbons obtained naturally or as a residue from petroleum distillation. It is used for road surfacing and roofing. Okay. Where the fuck were they getting asphalt? Oh, really? Asphalt rose to the surface of the Dead Sea. Didn't didn't remember reading that. And that's that's all you need to know from that excerpt, but um this the more I read about ancient medicine, the more my head hurts. I'm like, okay, guys. Um Pine Pitch. I don't know why I yawn always during podcast. I don't yawn like any other time. Pine pitch was used as a fuel for torches during fertility rites of Bacchus. This probably developed into the Christian Holy Saturday rites. And Holy Saturday rites are the prelude to Easter in which there's a, a ritual blessing of certain water. And that water is it, it claimed to have healing powers. It's more symbolic than anything. But... It's this idea that um, that fire is the, the spirit, essentially. It's a, it's a representation of the spirit. But this, um, it seems like a good connection. I mean, what we're looking at here absolutely makes sense as the progression of modern religions. But, you know, to keep to keep my flow, if I even have one today, apparently menstrual blood was tied to the phases of the moon. And when there was no visible moon, the blood was incredibly powerful. So much so that if someone has sex during the new moon, the man will die or get a disease. Not the woman, for some reason, though. That, that They never said she'll get a disease, just the dude, which I, I guess, you know, it might just be early in, incidents of STDs. Now, there's this, this kind of last little thing that I, I sectioned out here that was pretty interesting to me. There's a similarity between the cult of Hestia, a Greek goddess, the firstborn of Zeus, and Jesus in the form of being the first and the last. Hestia was the firstborn of Zeus, but Zeus ate all his children and she ate them, he ate them in order of their birth. So Hestia was the firstborn and the last to be regurgitated. Zeus was a fucking weirdo. It also mentioned that Jesus is the firstborn of many brethren from Romans 8.28. Now, the thing to me is I've never heard Jesus mentioned as the first of many brethren. And the interpretation for that is manifold, really, because it could be there's multiple sons of God, but it could also be that, you know, God is a person. So he has brothers in all of humanity. Now, I'm going to elaborate on the cult of Hestia since she was pretty obscure. 
or I'm going to elaborate on what's called the Vestals because Hestia was just their figurehead. The Vestals were a cult that maintained an eternal flame, and they supposedly represented a royal house from that era. Now, it was composed of young girls around 6 to 10 years old, sometimes older. It said that they had service years of 5 or 6 they had no they had a service time of 5 to 6 years but at certain points in history they had 30 year terms which was never elaborated on but they just said it there's a lot of stuff that i want to know more about that just was not elaborated on um these girls were referred to as princesses and they dressed as brides every day and maintained their virginity for the extent of their term. So when they were handed over by their parents at six or 10 or whatever age in between there, they were given to the care of a high priest known as the Pontifex Maximus. We need more titles like that, honestly. He presided over the initiation ritual where the girls were given a formula of admission. It never detailed that, but it seems like a uh, like an oath, basically. And they had their hair cut off and hung on a tree. Here's some just general discipline rules from the Vestals. If a Vestal failed to keep the fire going, she was beaten. If she lost her virginity, she was buried alive. I'm just, I'm just gonna let you guys just, just like stew that one over. Just think about that. They give over a six-year-old. She's whatever, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. She's eleven on the last year of her term. If she lost her virginity anywhere between six and eleven, which is already absolutely fucked. And then your boy, Pontifex Maximus, found out she was getting buried alive. And here's the best part. They didn't bury you in a, in a grave. They left you in a tomb to just starve and die. That's... It's a pretty rough one. It's a really rough one. But... That's the the extent of my notes for this one. There's... There's a lot in this book that I think has validity. And... You know, I'm certainly willing to believe the idea, like how they treated medicine, how they treated religion, all that stuff. But there's some things that I just, I just can't bring myself to believe that super specifically. And a lot of it really has to do with the fact that he didn't elaborate super well on things that weren't related to what he was specifically talking about. Like, I know 
that this guy, oh my fuck, that this guy wants us to believe that Amanita muscaria was the establishing plant behind Christianity. But in order for me to understand that, I feel like I needed more elaboration on some other things. Like, okay, if you're going to tell me about these ideas of Pater Zeus or, you know, that cult of Hestia, where you have a lot of similarities and overlap, well, where... Where were the Greeks getting their psychedelics? Or where were, I don't know, the, the I'm just going to stick with the Greeks. Where were the Greeks getting their psychedelics? Because I'm, I know that they were Greek practices of psychedelics, but what time did they start using them? How did they use them? All that stuff that, you know, it would have made the book longer, but this book isn't particularly long. I mean, the thing is half notes. Like, on page 208, 207, actually, it just gives you notes. Like, it's going gonna, it's gonna to hit you with all this stuff. And then it says, okay, here's uh, 100-plus pages of specific notes for stuff that you need to go and research now because you didn't you didn't know it like here's something that would have probably given me a ton of good context LT Farnell The Cults of the Greek States five volumes published 1896 to 1909 okay so I'm just gonna go read a five volume text on Cults of the Greek States so that I can better understand this one book. And the reason, you know, I'm, I kind of wonder, right? There were a bunch of other people on the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls translation team that had different opinions, and they basically agreed on them. So how did that, why, why is this guy any different? Why did what he read show up as, you know, the false interpretation, things like that. And a big reason why I kind of find this book is valid is because I don't hear very often of someone publishing a book and that book being something that like drives them out of academics. Like, how, how controversial do you have to be? I mean, you know, there's, uh, I have some tabs here specifically for, like, paintings and artworks. There's a fresco showing the Amanita muscaria as the tree of, of life in the Garden of Eden. And that was painted in 1291 in France. So there's clearly precedent for it, but at the same time, it, it feels like it's kind of unfinished. And, you know, in this, this, the front page of this book, 
the, you know, like the title cover, not the cover page, but you know, the title under the, the cover. He has a ton of other books. I mean, he has a book called the Dead Sea Scrolls. He has the people of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the treasure of the Copper Scroll. I mean, you know, Dead Sea Scrolls and the Christian myth. It's this guy, this guy is, I don't even think this guy's alive anymore. Um, Cause his first book was published in 1956. I'd have to go back and read the Dead Sea Scrolls to really know, you know, all the context behind that, because I read this without knowing a lot about the official interpretation of the Dead Sea Scrolls. So I'm wrapping this one up here on Sacred Mushroom and the Cross. I really enjoyed it, but, you know, I, I think that I might have to come back and do a series on the Dead Sea Scrolls soon. But what I'm doing, and this is pretty cool if you guys like software for mind mapping, but I found a software called Minzel. It's, the website is a Minzel, M-I-N-Z-E-L dot I-O. And it's a free mind mapping software. Now, originally I was going to use WriteMap because I'm taking a... If you guys watch a bunch of YouTube videos, you better feel like I'm plugging something, but I'm not. Uh, I watch Polymatter on YouTube, and I recommend his his videos because they're cool. But I decided that what I kind of want to do with the social media is make short 60-second history clips or art clips or something that just kind of explains a short little topic that's just that's just not too in-depth but really you know superficial like what was a roman consul or what how, how are the roman legions organized or something like that and i i was really um you know he recommended right map but i found menzel and i like it i'm using it to plot out how the next uh, podcast is going to go because I, I, I want to organize it. So I know exactly how much to read. I mean, with this book and with other books, I've kind of just been winging it and be like, I have to read this many pages by this amount of time. But, uh, I'm going to give you guys an overview of how the next series meditations by Marcus Aurelius is going to go. And that is we're going to have th three episodes, of course. The first one is covering the first four books. I'm going to be covering four books per episode. And there's 12 books in the, the, uh, there's 12 books in meditations, but I'm going to try and get two guests. I'm going to try and get Invicta, who's a YouTuber, who's very, um, very comprehensive with Roman history and stuff like that. And then I'm going to try and get Scala Gladiatoria, who is a YouTuber who is all about historical European martial arts and the history behind uh, military tactics and uh, general combat skills and techniques of medieval and ancient Europe. So I'm going to try and get those two guys just to have them in between as, you know, the... Um, the freestyle episodes, but I'm also doing a show on the 18th of this month with uh, some Redditors I met in the podcasting forum. They do a paranormal podcast, and I listened to it, and I, I liked it, but I'm going to be going on their show, 
and talking about whatever paranormal experiences I've had. And I'm going to bring them on their, on this show and I'm going to talk about, um, you know, kind of just stuff in the paranormal because I've never gotten the, the opportunity to actually talk to someone who is deeply invested in the paranormal realm. And, you know, I would like to talk to him about it because I grew up really, really believing in that stuff. And I still believe to it in it to an extent. I mean, I don't like there's certain parts of it where I'm like, okay, fuck off with that one. But there's a lot of it I still do believe in. And I think that there's especially the philosophical aspects of it. I mean, I'm going to be talking mostly about the philosophical aspects and the idea that really we're just not seeing things that are there and all that stuff. But um, that's going to be recorded on the 18th. I don't know when I'm going to publish it yet. I'm probably going to publish it like the next week. But uh, I'm just kind of giving you guys that heads up so you know exactly how this next month is going to roll out. And I'm probably going to be doing that in general. Now, I'm still, I haven't sent the emails out to Invicta and Scala Gladiatoria yet, but I'm really going to try and get those guys on. So I will be wrapping this one up and I will see you uh, Monday with whatever I want to talk about then. And Friday with the first four books of Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. See you later. And, you know, review the show, all that cool stuff. Peace out.